Welcome back to Life for Something Like It. I'm your host, Tracy Lee. In today's episode, we're going to be dealing with a very serious topic, and that is the subject of addiction. I think uh, most of us have either experienced it firsthand, or we have a loved one who has. And I think we can all agree that the damage and the pain and the trauma that comes with it is, uh, is, is almost undescribable. And little by little, it can, it can eat away at our lives and damage the foundation of our families. The road to addiction and the much longer road to recovery is certainly riddled with potholes and speed bumps and, and ditches. The struggle is real. The medical community certainly does believe that there are a lot of issues that contribute to addiction, whether it's the genetic predisposition, you know, the DNA, we can't control our DNA, uh, whether we've experienced childhood trauma or some kind of, of issue that's happened that causes us just that inner shame and pain that we can't deal with. Sometimes our environmental factors, something that's going on in our life that's causing stress. So we reach out to alcohol or drugs to help sort of numb that pain. These are all factors that'll affect us. And it's hard to know what'll make one person an addict versus another one who can just sort of balance things out and have the odd glass of wine or or something and, and it doesn't traumatize them. But now today with all the legal pharmaceuticals out there, and then of course the illegal drugs that are floating around on the streets, it's really a cultural phenomenon that is, I think, reaching epidemic portion, uh, proportions to the point where you know crime rates are up, um, it's affecting productivity in the workplace. We're seeing more and more families that are destroyed by it. It doesn't help that when we go to see a doctor about an issue, they are very quick to throw pills at us without really taking into account, do we need that pill? Have we gotten to the source of the problem? Why is the pain occurring? Is this an acute situation or a chronic situation? Sometimes we're told to take another pill to offset the side effects of the first pill. And before you know it, it's sort of a vicious cycle of having to pop all these pills just to get through the day. And a lot of times, it just leaves people feeling worse than when they went to the doctor in the first place. So that's a big issue, and we're seeing a lot of that with young people. Why on earth would a doctor prescribe something like an an opiate to a teenager, knowing the addictive uh, qualities of that particular drug? So that teenager just takes one pill for their knee surgery, and they feel so good. Next thing you know, they're stealing grandma's pills. And then it becomes heroin, and it just goes on and on. It's, it's really quite frightening. And even if we look in, in Canada, alcohol abuse is still costing us some, something like $15 billion a year. I mean, that's astounding to me. Once someone does come to the realization that they have to get help because their lives are out of control, they can't handle another day of the way they feel because of their addiction, they have to really seek out meaningful rehabilitation programs and they have to be really committed to get into the program. 
It can't be just because somebody forced them to or because they're going to lose something. Oftentimes that will be the motivator, whether it's family cutting them off or job loss, all that sort of thing, their health in general. Sometimes they do reach a crisis point where they realize the only way they're going to get better is to get into rehab. Um, you know, some some succeed and some fail. You know, we watch the families and friendships that are destroyed. And often the legacy of addictions will continue on through the generations. And tragically, some people do, they die. One thing is for sure, I think, by sharing painful experiences and sharing stories of triumph over adversity, we can give others a sense of feeling less alone and most importantly, give them a sense of hope. Hello. Today, my guest is my friend Fawn Bose. Welcome, Fawn. Hi. Hi. You are someone that I was drawn to a few years ago through Facebook. And I just think of you as such a, you're so beautiful, intelligent, funny. I just, I always like your little, your little witty uh, comments. I know on one of our Instagram exchanges, you made me laugh with a comment. I think it was something like, I always say half my soul is eight and the other half is 80. Like I'll stop to play with the whoopee cushion, but fuck unnecessary loud noises. That just summed you up. I thought that was so cute. You've kind of got that that old soul thing going on. And I've always liked how you're willing to sort of share your your personal experiences with people. You're you're pretty much an open book. And, you know, I really hope that by sharing with me today, you'll even if you help one person sort of feel less alone in whatever they're going through and and let them know that, you know, there's hope out there. So. Mm-hmm. Sort of trying to think where to begin. I guess if you could just sort of share some of the, you know, key points in your life where for you that that certain events or your environment maybe led you to drugs and sort of how they became a big issue for you and, and sort of some of the experiences you went through. Um, okay, where to start? So as a kid, yeah, okay, so as a kid, home life, very, very unstable. Um, Lots of abuse. Mom was an alcoholic. It was just very unstable. So I think I was about 12. I started smoking weed, coping with my issues, not liking myself, um, My mom found out that I smoked weed, so she started smoking weed with me. I was allowed to, so it was okay, right? So obviously, I'm I'm smoking weed at home, smoking weed at school, I'm not doing good. Um, And like I said, it it was fairly turbulent at home. My mom drank a lot. She, She had a bad childhood, so I got lots of issues that she didn't deal with, um, did you have a father living with you too or no? I I had a stepdad. Okay. 
I had a stepdad. I didn't, I didn't live with my dad. Um, and then when I was in grade nine, um, I left home. Grade nine. Uh, grade nine. I left home. I, it was, well, she, she kicked me out, but like I said, like it was very cute. She kicked me out. And then, so I ran away. I hitchhiked from emo to Fort Francis, like as a kid, you know, like you leave. I remember like crying, telling my brother, like, I'm sorry, I'm leaving, but like, I'm gone. I'm out of here. I'm busting out. I left. I went to a friend's house. I stayed there. And then the cops showed up, you know, and they're like, you've been reported missing. You're a minor. They took me to the cop shop. They called my mom. They had phone and she's like, I'm dropping off a bag of stuff at your grandma's. Don't come back. <sighs> like, this is it, you know, and then they got on the phone with her and they're like, you know, like, don't call us anymore. Don't report her missing. This is it. So she had dropped off my stuff and then my grandma took me in and I, I moved in with my grandma um I not gonna talk about the reasons why but I wasn't allowed to live with my dad I just I didn't we our relationship was kind of rocky um so then I moved in with my grandma and she was great amazing but too I was too wild I guess like she was just she was always there but I just I was already gone at that point just not dealing with my stuff so I was smoking weed, I was doing basically any drug that I could get. And I, I like, I just went up the scale, every drug, you know, weed, mushrooms, ecstasy, acid, slowly throughout the years, you know, like the drugs get more and more intense. My drug use got more and more intense. Um, Holy. And then I think when I was about 14, I got surgery on my back. And that's when I was introduced to perks. Okay. So I kind of, you know, did those off and on throughout the years. And that's an, o- and that's then... an opiate, right? Percocet? It is. Okay. Yeah. And I remember really, really liking it. Um, wow. Okay. And then... And was it easy? It would have been... Was it easy for you to obtain? Like you had your prescription. It was. Like you could just get it? It on- was. I had a one-time prescription. But you yeah. could, yeah, like drugs. Like I had, I had done the perks and I liked them, but like drugs for considering I live in such a small town, like they were everywhere. Um, and then about 12 years ago, I got heavily, heavily into crack. Like I, there was nothing left of me. Like I was so far gone into that and then I remember thinking in my head you know like that that knowing that pills and stuff like that could be a downer effect so I was so strung out that I was going to use those to help get myself off the crack how old how old were you at that not realizing how how old were you then I'm 35 now I was probably about 23 22 23 okay um and then so I started doing the pills and like that was just like an instant addiction like I had never I was always using drugs but I was always able to cope and deal with my life and you know do the drugs and wake up the next day and function and then 
when I started doing the oxys and stuff like that, like it was just instant, like they had such a grip on me, like that's not something you can just kind of do and walk away from them. Once you start doing them, the sickness, the withdrawals, the, and the way they made me feel like it was still to this day, like I think about best feeling ever. I, I don't know how else to explain it, but it was such a good feeling, you know, you're constantly chasing that dragon <laughs> down yeah. feeling where I, yeah, like I was, I was eating them and then I started sniffing them before I knew it, I was injecting them. And once I was injecting them, like I, it was game over. Um, there was a point where I was going to rehab for, I don't even remember what time it was. Uh, I had asked my son's dad to take him for a few months because I was going away to treatment. And we had written up, you know, like an agreement, like we're going to stop the child support and everything like that. And the day that we went to the courthouse, the lady told me not to sign the papers because there was no beginning date and no end date on me signing over my son. She's like, don't sign this. Right. You're signing, you're just signing over your rights. There's no end date on this. Like this doesn't look right. So my son's dad threw a fit. I came home. I'm waiting for my son to get off the bus he just never came home. He didn't come off the bus. So I called the school. They're like, we don't know what to tell you. He should have been on the bus. And right away, it's panic mode. His dad called me and he's like, you should have signed the papers. I have them. Get help. How old was your son at that point? And he kept him. Oh dear. Okay. He would have been seven or eight. Okay. At that point. And then... He just didn't come home and because I'm, I'm a strong drug addict, you know, I got no grounds to stand on in my mindset. I was like, he's gone. Yeah. You know, he has them. I can't get him back. I don't have anything saying that I should have him back. I remember calling the cops and he had them, you know, he was his dad. He had every right to have them. And then I just kind of accepted that he was gone. You know, yeah. I was a, I was a loser, mm-hmm. a junkie. And so I was like, I'm going to try and go to treatment anyways. Um, my dad showed up that day that I was going to treatment, changed the locks on my doors. And it was like, like if you don't get clean this time, don't bother coming back. Like, we're done. You know, yeah. you've spent all our money. That's crazy. Don't come back unless you're clean. Oh boy. I think I was on day three in treatment. I'm in the in their shower, in my clothes, sick as a dog. Like the withdrawals are out of control. Like you think you're oh. dying. And it feels like you're dying. I mean, you unbelievable. Like the like I wouldn't wish that on anybody, the way you feel. Oh. And so they sent me to the hospital. And I remember they gave me something intravenously, like worst thing you can do for a person in that that's what I was addicted to Mm -hmm. and I remember just that feeling they injected it I could smell it on my breath like I could taste it game over once (laughs) once I wasn't too high I was so high I couldn't get out of the bed I fell out of the bed once I was able to get out of the bed 
I was I was chasing the next high all over again. I went to the treatment center, grabbed my suitcase, and then I'm on the streets of Thunder Bay. And I got a suitcase. I don't know anybody. I'm looking for drugs. Mm-hmm. I did that just over 30 days. Homeless, staying at the homeless shelters, sleeping in parks, panhandling. Oh, man. People in the homeless shelter, girls that worked on the streets at nighttime. I still got like a sore thumb. Like, and I wish, I wish I could remember their names or find them because they would go out at night. They would come back. They would share their stuff with me. Like some of those people kept me alive yeah. you know like they told me told me about abandoned buildings that I could stay in they Jeez. told me about good places you know to panhandle to get money they shared their stories with me they you know told me about streets like not to go on you know kind of thing because they weren't safe you were like your own little community um, like what is what a what an interesting thing and it really it really was they all had each other's backs you know like it was so they would all meet up at night they would leave they would all come back so nice like some of the best people I ever met you know and they were so worried about me like I remember them being like you don't belong here yeah you know, like you're better than this. Don't made me any better than them at that point. No. You know, why was I any better? I remember them having kids. I remember them having families, talking to them about it. And then I remember one day walking into the homeless shelter. I think I was going in to try and find a sweater because it was getting cold at that point outside. And I didn't have the right kind of clothes. And they had this bulletin board. And there was a post-it on it that said, Fombos, if you're here, call home. Oh, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I took what my dad said to heart. Like, if you don't get better, don't come home. Like, it, it it hit me so hard when he said that when I left that I just didn't come home. Like, I thought they were done with me. I didn't have my kid. I gave up. And when I seen it, I remember I was outside, you know, and I still had that chip on my shoulder. And like, screw them. They gave up on me. But I used somebody's phone. And I called my dad and him you know, being like, like, you're alive. (laughs) And like, where are you? Like, sit down. I'll be there in three and a half hours. Don't fucking move. I'm coming to get you. Wow, you must have been shocked. And I came home. So shocked. I came home. I, I think within a week was on methadone, a program that I was so against for the longest time. But I was like, I got to fight. I'm going to die. Look at my life, you know, kind of thing. Like, I had an apartment, but in my mind, it made more sense to be homeless and to panhandle and to do all these things when I had a family and a kid. And like, I was like, go home and fight, you know, give it one more shot, fight, try to get clean. I went on methadone um, and it was just something to not be sick. Like methadone saved my life to not be sick. That's all I needed was just to not be sick. I could not handle the sickness. I used once while I was on methadone on November 10th. That's why I count November 11th as my sobriety date. Holy. And it, it was like instant. As soon as I was sick, it changed my mindset. I was like, I can do this. You know, like I started the court process. 
I started getting visits with my son and I started handing in, you know, my urine tests, which you have to do when you're on the methadone program. Okay. And the judge was like, you know, start initiating, get her kid back. She's, she's trying. She's had the kid, you know, his whole life, get her son back. And like, it was just that, like knowing that I had something to fight for all of a sudden, you know, like it, and it, it was like instant game changer. Like I didn't have addict brain anymore because I wasn't sick every day. I, wow, and, and I did it. Like I was on methadone, and I was like, I'm fighting. I'm doing it. Like, and I and I did it. Do you feel I stayed on methadone for a few? Years. Do you feel like your son got was, off the program? Was your son, sort of that, you know, you hear that expression, higher power, that led you to to want to get better. How much of a how much of a role do you think? your son played in that whether consciously or subconsciously it, it was everything because like when his dad took him that day like I said like I was so sick like when he didn't come home that day mm-hmm. in my mind I guess being sick I was like he like he's gone forever you know like I'm I'm a loser I'm a drug addict like I'm never gonna get him back mm. I just accepted it you know kind of thing like I knew I was going to treatment I knew I wasn't going to be able to do it. I never did it, you know, kind of thing. I couldn't handle the sickness. And like I said, I only made it three days and I was on the streets. Like I was okay with being homeless. I, it, I didn't think twice about it, you know, kind of thing. Like you hear about all the girls in Thunder Bay that go missing and stuff. That could have been me. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I can't even, get, I can't even get over a baby gate. Like what was I doing <laughs> out on the streets of Thunder Bay? I'm sorry. And then no and then so once he came back and there was just that chance that that like I could get him back I was like I'm doing it like and I did like just just seeing him like the the visits and getting him coming home when he would come home for those visits and, and him being happy and just I I didn't want to be like my mom like, I remember when I was sick, my brother showed up at my house one day and we got into it bad. Like, we were screaming at each other and he was like, you're just like our mom. Oh. And like that sleeping with me, being like, fuck you, no, I'm not, you know, kind of thing. But I was like, I, I was like, I'm not going to do that to my kid. I'm not going to be like my mom. Oh, so, and, you know, like we can't have like a real big point to prove. We can't, you know, we can't control what we grow up in. You know, there's, there's the genetic predisposition and the environmental predisposition. The fact that your mom, you know, smoked pot with you and, and made it okay. And that was such a big part of your, your childhood. A lot of times we just go with what we know. We're only kids. We don't have developed brains to mm-hmm. know. So it's almost like you didn't have a shot, but once you did get yeah. that, that little, it was like a little rope was thrown to you and you were down in that deep well. And it's almost like you just decided, I'm going to reach out and grab that rope. And I think that was the turning point for you because so many aren't able to, they can't, they can't see the light and somehow you did. And that's the, the stories that, you know, those of, those of the people that are going through that, it's, it's so hard for them to see that there can be a life on the other side. You know, when you look at your family, they probably felt like, what else can we do but tell you we're done? Um, I remember once. And that, it, it was the best thing he could have did for me. Like you, 
I know like I, I hear it on <laughs> Dr. Phil at all things all the time, but like that tough love, mm-hmm. it saved my life. I needed that time on that street. I needed to be hungry. I needed to wait in line for a sandwich and get turned away hungry. I, them giving me money for drugs, them coddling me, those, all those things, they were helping me kill myself. Yeah. Like, was, that's all they were doing. Was the, the definition of an Dude, they, they weren't, yeah. they weren't helping me. Like, all of that stuff, like, don't do that. Like, yeah. That- it was the worst thing they could have did for me. So, doctors like when I was using I would go into the doctor's offices and be like I'm an addict and I'm making bad choices and the doctor was like well how many are you using I would get prescriptions for oxys go pick them up pick up a needle kit and go straight to the bathroom at Safeway and hang out in the bathroom and not out every day really they didn't call my doctor they didn't say anything I'd go back in be like prescriptions out I need more and the doctor would just write me another prescription here's your pills here's some needles have at her you know kind of thing and I was like I promise I'm gonna go to treatment and get better I I did that so many times like it's the constant enabling thinking you're making it better there and they don't do that they're contributing to like they're they're like drug dealers they're like drug dealers in white coats it it just oh Uh and you know, it's, it's interesting. Like recently I seen an article, this, they're prescribing heroin now for heroin addicts. What? And it, like, it was like mind blown. Yeah. Oh, it's a thing now they're prescribing heroin, pharmaceutical heroin for heroin addicts. And I was like, what? Oh, what? Wow. what the, no, that doesn't make it any better. And they're like, well, once they get their fix, you know, they can focus on other things no. and, you know, they can focus on jobs. They can focus on this. Well, I can no. promise you when the doctor was giving me my pills, I was still doing nothing. I was high. I wasn't doing anything. <laughs> like, like you're, you're not doing anything when you're a drug no addict. No one is functional you're not. on heroin. Like, come on. That's ridiculous. No. Jeez. Yeah, you're not doing anything. You know, it's such a fine line with the whole enabling support, knowing what to do. I remember talking to a counselor once about a loved one who was dealing with addiction. And I kept saying things like, but if I don't do this and what if I have to and what can I do? And she kept saying, what kind of power do you think you have? And that line sort of hit me right between the eyes. It was kind of like, wait a minute, like I I can only do so much for this person so it's kind of like your your family got you to a place by 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 cutting you off but like so so how do you sort of figure out that anybody out there who's dealing with addiction of a child or a relative or a husband wife um sibling how what's the best advice to give a family member or loved one so that they can help without being that enabler like to me that's sort of a a really difficult line. It is. I think about that all the time because I talk to a lot of people that are struggling with addiction. Cause like I've been very open about it on my social media. I've been very like, because I can't imagine say if it was my son or something like that, like how I would be, you can love them. You can be supportive, but like you can't love them to death. And I feel like that's what my dad was doing. You know, if I'd pawn off my TV, 
to get a fix he'd go get my tv the next day and get it back for me and then give me money because he didn't want me doing anything stupid mm, yeah but like it it was helping but it, it wasn't you know he was keeping me comfortable I was a comfortable addict I never had to be uncomfortable and those 30 days where I was on the street I was exhausted I had to hit that point yeah the truth like everybody has their own low you know like you have to hit rock bottom it's going to be different for everybody yeah and I do like I think I I think tough love is the best approach you can't enable an addict you can love them Mm -hmm. and you can support them you can buy them go don't give them money for groceries you can go buy them groceries you know don't give them because it's not going to go to groceries You, you can so many times I would be like I need money for food you know kind of thing I didn't eat yeah, I didn't go buy groceries, you know, like, so it's like, it's a fine line, but like tough love Yeah, saved my life. I needed it, you know, for, cause for a year they made me comfortable and yeah, it didn't help. Well, I'm, I'm sure glad that all of those events that happened have you here with us today, because that's not always the story. And it's just heartbreaking, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about that, some young all the young people that we're hearing lives and some of them it's because of long-term addiction and some of the, some of them it's just one or two really bad experiences. And, you know, yeah, we all want something to make us feel better. But when you hear these stories, like it's just a tragedy and I'm so, so relieved that you're here and you're able to talk about it. And your son has you like now, how old is Nolan now? Your son? He's going to be 18 oh. on the second. Wow. Oh, I love it. I know. I remember a few years ago when you shared so with crazy. me some experiences you were having with him. You know, I've, I always said he's such a beautiful young man and he seems so smart and, and just a really good kid. And I remember you sharing that he had con- confided in you. He'd come out to you and, and said, said his truth. And I remember thinking how lucky he was to have a mom like you that supported him and loved him through all of the changes and discoveries he was going through. I just thought, wow, that's not always the case. There's so many parents that aren't able to be supportive and just still love their kids through whatever it is, you know, whether it's their, their sexuality or gender issues or whatever it is. And I was just so proud that, that he had you and that you supported him. And I just, I think too, you know, recently you shared that he'd been going through his own mental health issues and that you were able to intervene Mm -hmm. before it was too late. And I feel like your own experiences had to have been instrumental in that. So tell me a bit about that. Um, So the thing is for the longest time, I don't know exactly how long he never did tell me, um, I didn't know at first. Um, I actually got a call from the school. Nolan was on a, on his dad's week. We did week on, week off. Nolan was, a teacher had noticed that he had cuts all over his arms. Oh, okay. Um, and called me. They were unable to get a hold of his dad. So they called me. I picked up Nolan seen his arms and I was like as a parent right like lost my mind I to see him hurt like that 
I didn't understand it. And I was like, what's going on? He was struggling. We're in a super small town. He came out. He's in high school. He he was self-harming to, to deal with stuff. His relationship with his dad, his, which was fairly rocky. You know, his his dad isn't a bad dad by any means, but they don't relate a lot as people. They, they struggled a lot. And it was his way of coping. He that's how he was explaining it. He was, he was doing it to cope, which I had heard of a lot. I did it as a kid. I, I self-harmed, you know, I, I didn't like my life. I, so I was like, okay, you know, that, that's fairly understandable. It's, he's self-harming, but I was like, "Mm, probably not going to go to your dad's for a little while if this is what's going on over there. So I was like, you're not doing this anymore. Um, and then one night, I remember I was cleaning the hallway and I was like three feet from Nolan's door and I heard something. It was like a banging noise and I felt instant sick, Oh, oh okay. but like I, I second guessed myself on it. Like it was, I just, I put like the thought away yeah. and I went upstairs and then I, I heard him call for me. Oh, wow. And I went downstairs. He had attempted to hang himself <gasps> oh, in his room. Oh, my God. And the rope broke. Oh, So I... it was way more extreme than I knew what was going on. He was only opening up to me about so much. Oh, my heart. Is... So I go in there and his neck, his neck is red. And I was like, we're going. We're going to the hospital. I don't understand what's going on. <sighs> we were sent to Thunder Bay. He spent a couple days in the psychiatric ward. They started us, you know, with counselors and everything like that. And no one was diagnosed with depression, um, which we battled off and on for a few years. And they said they felt like it was very instrumental for Nolan to spend time with his dad, that I shouldn't try to intervene. They actually sent Nolan home with his dad from the hospital in Thunder Bay. Um, Self-harming continued. So then when Nolan came home from one of his visits from his dad, I was like, I don't care if I'm like rule breaking with this court order thing. Cause we had a court order. You're not going back. If this is what's going on when you go there, I'm not sending you to your dad's house anymore. I'm keeping you, you know, call the cops on me. Yeah. I'm trying to save your life. Yeah. Like, you just went into self-protection. I can't lose you. You know, like, yeah. Um, And he just said, like, he was so overwhelmed. Like, he would go into these dark places that he couldn't explain. Yeah. And so over the years, like, we'd get put in contact with different doctors. Like, now he sees Dr. Chamberlain through teleconference from Sick Kids in Toronto. Oh. Okay. Um, They've bring up maybe borderline personality disorder. We're unsure still because it's hard we're only seeing him through teleconference and stuff like that nolan's been put on prozac he seems to be doing a lot better now he's quit self-harming but it was very much like like i was so far up his ass like i was like i'm not giving you a chance to hurt yourself like it's we're gonna deal with this because i know i didn't deal with my issues yeah and it almost cost me my life yeah. You have to dig. Like, you want to shower? I'm hanging out in the bathroom. You want to <laughs> shave? 
I'm gonna watch you like <laughs> I, I was like he didn't have a chance to do anything like it was I I was there I was like you don't want to talk to me yeah but you just had your bed for six hours did me hated me but like I I was like we're dealing with it because like if you don't deal with your issues you're gonna wind up the way I did or worse you know kind of thing like I'm not gonna lose you like I and then I think it was two years ago now like it makes me want to cry I still have the card I even posted it on my Instagram not long ago where he gave me my mother's day card and all he wrote in it was you gave me life and you saved my life oh boy like I'll, I'll never oh, yeah like I'll never forget that because for years it was you know I hate you get out of my face leave me alone I'm fine and I was like you're not fine like it's it's not okay because there was nobody there to do those things for me nobody paid attention no teacher you know was like what's going on you know no yeah. nobody noticed anything that was ever going on in my life nobody questioned anything what yeah exactly and so I was like I'm not giving you a chance you know like there was nobody there to do those things for me so I was like I'm gonna be that parent like I'm gonna be so much better and give you better than what I had and and he's doing great now he's in his last year of high school mm. he's happy I love it. we have a great relationship like it's Gee. we had to fight through it and I mean he still has bad days and but we feel like we figured it out it's an everyday thing and oh I'm just so that's two really good good outcomes and as you said to me earlier when we were talking privately whether it's mental health whether it's addiction it's an ongoing battle and it's something we have to be on top of and we always have to keep Mm -hmm. keep our our spidey sense at the forefront because it's so easy like you said to get caught up in life and look away we never want to think the worst but sometimes we have to be much more even if it seems like paranoia I think it's better to be on top of it and I like that you're seeing a light for both of you when I when I when you look back at your life today compared to some of those darkest times you had and also what Nolan's gone through what are the things right now that bring you the most joy in life like what sort of is what's your you know what makes you happy I feel like I'm such a simple person. Like that's okay. Okay, I I, re- I really, really am. Okay, so I feel like unless you've been addicted to drugs, like you won't understand this one. But for almost ten years now, one of the biggest things is to wake up and not be sick. Like that is like I think that's something I think about every day like that like god oh I used to want to die all the time like every day I'd wake up and be like I want to die I hated my life like to just and so sick so sick so like waking up every day making coffee I look out my kitchen window like so simple like I'm, I'm a bird watcher I make my coffee while my coffee's brewing I stare out the window I look at the sun I watch the birds and like it's like these little key moments throughout my day that are so like I, I do it every day every single day they mean oh. everything to me like that's something 
that like I appreciate the fact that I'm waking up because yeah. it's amazing there were so many times where I didn't want to you know I didn't want to wake up anymore but like I'm so happy I'm oh. here like all the little things we take for granted just, hey, and you're just you're the, 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 yeah like the little the littlest things like laughing with Nolan like we have the same sense of humor we're both so weird <laughs> but the days where we laugh because there was so many years where it was just chaos you know kind of thing so many bad days where you know like we're yelling at each other and I'm fighting and just yelling at them you know where it's the days where you know like we both get home from work it's the end of the night we're getting ready for bed and I'm sitting on the end of his bed and we both had a good day and we're just laughing together and I'm like you're here and I'm here and we did it you know like did it we're still here you know kind of thing like we made it and oh I just I'm kind of teary-eyed right now I gotta say it's it's a lot like it just it makes me really I'm really really thankful and do you have do you have things like activities and things that you like to do on a bigger scale or or um you know what else like in terms of outside of you know we all have to go to work and pay the bills but then when you have your free time what's what sort of outside of time with your son, what other things kind of continue to lift you up? Mm, again, pretty simple. Um, me and my best friend, it, it's hard because we're you know, both parents, both working and everything like that. But we do like our little road trips, you know, whether it's but we have like this little like bucket list of things that we're always trying to tick off because we both had kids super young and working and life but we were like I think we both kind of hit a point you know like about two years ago we were like man like we want Mm -hmm. more you know and even if it's little things but we were like let's go camping or let's go do this and you know so we started hitting off random places you know like last year we went camping went to the sleeping giant not really thinking it's in the mountains you know and it's like spring and we show up there's still snow you know kind of thing and all this stuff but like we're car camping and we we did the suspension bridges we're both scared of heights but it was just ticking little things off our bucket list you know like we're gonna live and she's terrified of guns you know I love guns I love guns I grew up hunting and trapping and stuff like that so I was like we're going to a shooting range you're gonna shoot some (laughs) guns like the look on her face like when we go out there and she's holding a gun as big as she is she's like four foot nothing and I'm like let's do this you know like I got my goggles on and like but just like the simplest things make me so happy you know like it was just in a shooting range doing something yeah because they're all things that like I really never thought I was going to get to do like I really had like rewind 10 years ago I had written everything off like it was it was game over Wow, that's so. so I read a oh, lot. I drink way too much coffee. I'm so simple. Like it's, it's listen to a lot of podcasts, read too many serial killer books. I just I, the littlest things. I, I have an affinity towards crime podcasts too and books. And my husband's always like, I'm uh, starting to get a little creeped out about how much you're watching uh, these crime shows on Netflix and the podcasts you listen to and the books you read. I'm like, don't worry, it's just. Have you have you heard about that missing four one one phenomenon? No. If you no, haven't, what's that? look into it. It's 
there's all these missing people all over the world. They happen in clusters. Yosemite National Park has the biggest cluster for missing people in the world. So weird why Yosemite National Park has the biggest one. But more people go missing in Yosemite National Park than any other place in the world. And they're not just missing people. Like, these people vanish. Like, they just disappear. So it's this ex-cop who started looking. And he's a legit cop. He's written, like, six books. And he does these podcasts. And it's called Missing 411. And they rule out animal attacks. They rule out kidnappers. They rule out murders. These are people that literally just, poof, disappear. And it's a phenomenon that he's been looking into. And he's like, where are these people going? Like, what's happening? And every night I sit here and I listen to these podcasts. I'm like, oh my God, like I'm just mind blown. And my friends are like, you're really weird. Like your bedtime stories are about like missing people, you know, they're like, we're afraid of the dark and you're laying in bed all cozied up, (laughs) breathing ear to ear, you know, listening to all these missing people things. I'm just fascinated. I'm like, where are they going? Like you have to look into it. You'll be sucked right in. Another binge. I've got a favorite one on CBC called someone knows something and that guy is just amazing he digs up old stuff cold cases and things and yeah you know what I think it is it's just that interest in people and the human mind and what what were they like before they killed someone or what were they like before like it's just all to me it's just about that that innate sense of curiosity I guess I'm just mystified and if I start listening to this missing 411 I'll probably be binging on that next but hey I'll I'll give it a listen for sure. No, you, you, you will. You have to try it because, like, I was like, oh, I'll just, you know, listen to this before I go to bed. It's been like a year long thing oh, now. I can't okay. give it up. Like, because it's just ongoing all the time. Yeah, it's okay, so I'll interesting. It I'll add it on. So, thanks so much for taking the time, Fawn. I'm okay. so appreciative. What would you like? What would one last piece of wisdom based on your own experiences, if there's anybody listening? that is either suffering from addiction like or thinking that it's it's now become to the point where it's taking control of their lives or someone who has a loved one is there any one nugget that you could say that could make a bit of a difference do you think I mean I think you've said quite a bit here but if there's anything else you'd want to add at all um if it's for like the person that's like struggling because I think we all have it like I said we talked about this on the phone earlier we all have stuff like we all have a past we all have a history you have to deal with it like as hard as it is as scary as it is because I feel like that's what it is it's it's a not dealing it's a coping it's a masking I think that's how we all wind up with whether it's drinking problems drug problems it's a not willing to deal. It's a masking. It's a numbing. It's a it's a coping mechanism. You have to deal with your stuff. As hard as it is, as much as it hurts, you got to deal with your yeah. issues. Deal with it. You got to sit with it. You got to cry it out. You got whatever it is. Go to counseling. Get help. Deal with your yeah. stuff. As for a person, you know, that's trying to love an addict, what your however you would word that. I don't know have have patience for one because their brain changes it's not a normal brain like I think back and I was called addict brain you know you had addict brain it wasn't my brain I was so different but like I 
I don't even know what to say, Tracy. Like, I want to save tough love, but is that right for everybody? I'm not sure. I just know it saved my life. Wow. It really did. You can't, you can't coddle it and make an addict no. comfortable as much as you want to because you love them. You yeah, can't. there has to be something there to so. the pain of, of staying the mm-hmm. same has to be worse than the pain of change. And they have to find their own rock bottom. You're yeah. right. But at the end of the day, they do because everybody has one. Sorry, what was that last thing? Oh, no, I just said, like, everybody has yeah. a rock bottom. They'll hit it. You have to let them hit it as much as it sucks to see or watch or everyone has one. They'll hit it. You know, for some people, it might take a lot more. You know, like I see, I know people who, for me, I, I would be like, man, like my rock bottom looking at their life would have been 20 rock bottoms ago. But for some, like they each have their own. You got to let them hit it it sucks to sit back and watch but you can't help somebody that's not willing to help themselves and that's something I've reached out to so many people since I've been clean like do you need help do you need somebody to talk to you know and I don't get responses you know and it makes me so sad but I'm like they you can't help people that don't want help so true well thank you again I so appreciate your your openness I think the best way we connect and grow is just through learning about what our fellow human beings go through and uh you know just by you being open and sharing i hope it makes a difference even for one person so thank you so much take care i hope okay, so you take too. care thanks oh, thank Bye. you okay wow that was um certainly a very impactful story. I have to say that one of the things I really admire is when people like Fawn are willing to be courageous in sharing the pain that they've gone through. Because in a lot of ways, it's almost like they have to relive it when they're sharing. And I I know that's not an easy thing to do. But just by doing so, even if they help only one person, make one person feel less alone, less isolated in their pain and their experiences. I think that's when we're doing a greater good. And I think that's that's true generosity, really. If we can take our own really painful experiences and, and share them, and then hopefully somebody else doesn't have to go through the same thing, or they can come out the other side, I think that that's, that's a win for everybody. So I'm very... I'm very grateful that Fawn was willing to share with us. If you or a loved one are dealing with addiction, support and resources are out there. They're, they're there. They're not uh, easy to find, but they're, they're out there. Through our healthcare system, through Addictions Foundation of Manitoba, or your local addictions organizations, it does take extreme courage and perseverance to overcome, like any health issue. But just knowing that there is a better life on the other side, I think that that would make it all worth it. So thank you for listening. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.